Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates author interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today's show is part of our Smithsonian Associates author interview series, and we have an excellent program about Adam Smith's America, the new book by our guest today, author, economist, and Smithsonian Associate, Glory Liu. Thanks so much for listening. As I say, we have got a great guest today who, after reading her new book, Adam Smith's America, I've been looking forward to talking to her for a while. I'll introduce her in just a moment, but quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 687th episode when I spoke with Smithsonian Associate Mary Beth Albright about her new book, Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being. Two weeks ago, I spoke with National Pickleball Ambassador Nikki Weigel. Wonderful subjects for our Not Old Better Show audience, especially in this new year. If you missed those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. Our guest today is author, educator, and Smithsonian associate, Glory Liu. Glory Liu will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates via Zoom coming up. Please check out our website for more details and information about Glory Liu's presentation at Smithsonian Associates titled Adam Smith's America. Glory Liu has written the new book, Adam Smith's America. As so many in our audiences will know from our school years, Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, originally published in 1776, was lauded by America's founders as a landmark work of enlightenment. It was thought at the time that it was about national wealth, statecraft, and moral virtue. Today, Adam Smith is one of the most influential icons of economic thought in America. Our guest today, Smithsonian Associate Glory Liu, a lecturer in social studies at Harvard University and author, will trace with us how generations of Americans have read, reinterpreted, and weaponized Smith's ideas over time. Glory Liu will answer our questions about how Adam Smith charts the enduring fascination that this humble philosopher from Scotland has held for American readers over more than two centuries. Glory Liu tells us about how Adam Smith continues to be a vehicle for articulating perennial moral and political anxieties about modern capitalism today. What first interested me in Adam Smith's reception history is the gulf between the popular caricatures of Smith on the one hand and his reputation among most scholars on the other. How, when, and why did Smith become known primarily as an economist, specifically a free market economist, rather than as an Enlightenment moral philosopher. Among the many canonical thinkers that one can reference, why do people continue to return to Adam Smith? Reception history can help us answer these questions. It helps us understand how and why some ideas become powerful and politically meaningful, while others fall to the wayside. But more generally, reception history can reveal how certain ways of thinking and ways of approaching a text come into being. It can shed light on some of the reasons why the wealth of nations became such an important and common departure point for the formation of American political economy and why it became a politicized text. Reception history can help explain why some past readers were relatively uninterested in the theory of moral sentiments for most of its afterlife, while many readers today see it as essential to understanding Smith's historical importance and practical relevance. There is something about Smith's works themselves, whether it is his literary talents or the perennial nature of the inquiries which he pursued, 
that have enabled them to speak across time, to seem so familiar more than 200 years after they were written. I argue, however, that this sense of timelessness and familiarity is not an inherent feature of Smith's texts, but rather something that is made, invented, and preserved by readers over time. That, of course, is our guest today, Smithsonian Associate Glory Liu, reading from her new book, Adam Smith's America. Glory Liu will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, but we have Glory Liu today. So please join me in welcoming author Glory Liu to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates, author interview series on radio and podcast. Glory Liu, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us today. I'm excited to talk to you about this subject. It it's a uh, it's a one it's one that I know my readers and our audience are going to enjoy a great deal. Um, you are going to be presenting at the upcoming Smithsonian Associates, really just right around the corner. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit with you about that and and your wonderful new book, Adam Smith's America. So let's just jump right in. Why don't you begin perhaps by telling us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation? So my presentation is going to be around my new book, which you mentioned, Adam Smith's America, How the Scottish Philosopher Became an Icon of American Capitalism. And I'll be highlighting how and why for over 200 years, American readers have been fascinated and really captivated by the works and the ideas of this eclectic Scottish Enlightenment thinker named Adam Smith. And also talking about why his ideas have been so important today in the 20th and 21st century for guiding or thinking about living in a market society the moral foundations of capitalism and thinking about capitalism in moments of crises. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think this is so relevant for today, but the the history is relevant and, and I think our audience, many in our audience will will know a bit perhaps about Adam Smith. What was it that Adam, about Adam Smith that drew you to him particularly because he as you say, he was this great observer of human life, and I, I like that. That just jumped right out at me, and, and I think that mm-hmm. that's something our audience might not be aware of. Mm-hmm. You know, what what else did we miss about Adam Smith in kind of our, our casual understanding of his mm-hmm. I think one of the most common things that people miss about Adam Smith is that he was a moral philosopher, and his first major work was published in 1759, well before The Wealth of Nations was published in 1776. And the theory of moral sentiments is a work of 18th century moral philosophy. And I think that you see Smith at his best as an observer of human life as he's describing moral phenomenology, that is the experience of our moral sentiments, what goes on inside our head, what do we feel and how do we react in these moral encounters? And the thing that I love about that book is that you really see Smith, you feel Smith getting inside your head. And I think that that really reveals how keen of an observer he is of everyday interactions and encounters with other people to show how morality is a fundamentally social thing. Right? You have to be a really good observer in order to kind of draw out draw on specific examples and and come up with a general theory of how morality works that really reaches your readers in um, an incredibly insightful way. When I teach this work to my undergraduates, one of the things that they say when they read the theory of moral sentiments for the first time is, 
first of all, I didn't know that Adam Smith wrote this book. (laughs) And second of all, it's like he's getting inside my head, right? Like he's anticipating what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. I know exactly that feeling that he describes is when you try to crack a joke and nobody else laughs, right? And he kind of leaves it at that. And you know exactly the feeling that he's pinpointing. Um, The other thing that I think that makes him a really keen observer of human life is just how historical he is. So he draws on ancient history, early European history, global history from East Asia, from Central Asia, really around the world, um, to use history as the foundation for his general theories of kind of human behavior and human social development, and then uses history again to kind of validate or test his theories. So he's just this deeply historical thinker. Um, and I think the other thing that makes his work so enticing and, and so gripping is not only is he getting inside your head, not only is he showing just his, his command of history, but he's also a beautiful writer. And I think that's one thing that really drew me in to Smith as this really sophisticated, really moving thinker is just how beautiful the writing is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And congratulations to you uh, for your writing. We are, are, of course, with Glory Liu. Glory Liu has written this wonderful new book entitled Adam Smith's America. Glory Liu, I found this great review of the book. It, it, it The book is getting rave reviews online. <laughs> Kirkus Reviews says, The Econic economist Adam Smith has become all things to all people over time, from Friedman-esque libertarian to anti-capitalist crusader. Even if Chicago, the Heritage Foundation, and other right-leaning entities have tried to seize him for their cause, author Glory Liu examines the possibility that Adam Smith may be closer to the values of the contemporary left. Thus are the many ambiguities in his work, a bracing study not just of Smith's ideas, but also of how scholars and activists have used and misused them. I just thought that that says an awful lot about your work and, and Adam Smith's. And I want to talk to you a little bit about this transformation that you that you refer to in the book. Mm-hmm. There's the Scottish Adam Smith that you that you read us mm-hmm. uh, you read to us about and thank you for for reading and then there's the American Adam Smith and then there's this transformation that he makes uh, from one to the other. How did he do that? And, yeah. and is that is that kind of the essence of one of these contradictions about Adam Smith that that Kirkus Reviews refers to? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for that very very generous. Um, compliment and the flattering review from Kirk. Yes, oh, I welcome. sometimes wonder oh, if they read yeah, the right book or them. not. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think one helpful way to um, to like um, frame the transformation of Adam Smith from the Scottish moral philosopher to the icon of American capitalism is to think about it in four stages. And here I'm borrowing from what I call the four stages model from the great intellectual historian, Stefan Collini. Um, And to think about this transformation as having kind of four main stages to it. So first in the 18th century, when Smith is still alive and he's writing the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations, the works and his ideas are immediately relevant to political and economic and intellectual issues of the time, whether it's theories of morality or state building, public debt, colonialism, the issue of mercantilism and what the British political economy looks like. He's responding to and and taking part in conversations that are live. And so his importance is very practical and it's very immediate. 
Um, and then the second stage of this transformation is when Smith starts to gain disciples and critics. So after Smith dies, after the kind of immediate reception and, and uptake in policy debates um, and intellectual circles, um, people start to claim discipleship. Like right? they'll say, I'm a follower of Adam Smith. They might not say that directly, right? Use that phrase. But if you're writing a textbook on political economy or you're writing a new commentary on political economy or moral theory, you might say, you know, following the works of the great thinker Adam Smith, or you kind of declare your allegiance to Smith or a Smithian style of reasoning. Um, and so you start to see people falling into the category of, um, you know, follower or, or critic. And it's through that systematic engagement with Smith's works that you, you start to see the foundation of like an intellectual authority or a tradition being created. The third stage, and this is really um, important in the American story, um, I chart this in, I think it's chapter three on free trade, is when that intellectual authority becomes a thing, for lack of better words, right? So the authority of Adam Smith starts to matter more than the substantive content of his ideas. So when people start to invoke the name of Adam Smith as the apostle of free trade, what they're doing is signaling right, the, the weight of his authority in order to make claims about policy and to signal their allegiance. But they're not really talking about his ideas as much as they are just using him as a mascot or a kind of poster child. So it's the authority that begins to matter more than the content of the ideas. And that's a really critical stage in the transformation of Adam Smith from, again, Enlightenment philosopher to kind of icon. And then the last stage, and we're somewhere in this stage, I think now, certainly we are, but there's, there's some back and forth and complexity to this. The last stage is when this thinker becomes canonical. He, begun, he, he begins to be regarded as a classic thinker. And there's no question that Smith is canonical and that he's considered a classic thinker. What's interesting about this stage is that it, it, you know, we've reached the point where Smith can now be an object of scholarly and historical significance. We can try and distance ourselves from him and we can study him as, you know, a very historical thinker and also somebody who is um, relevant to our contemporary debates. So just because somebody has become canonical doesn't mean that, oh, they're in the distant past and they're on this like dusty bookshelf. I think what's so interesting about Smith is that that kind of canonicity status, that status as a classic thinker, doesn't exclude the possibility that he's constantly politically charged and, and seen as a really politically valuable thinker to have on your side. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life? And everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are, of course, with Glory Liu. Glory Liu will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. We will have links 
in the show notes today where our audience can find out more information about Gloria Liu's presentation at Smithsonian Associates, as well as information about Gloria Gloria Liu and her new book, Adam Smith's America. The other section of the book that I thought was really interesting that I, I just wasn't too familiar with was this mm. writing that you do, this research on Adam Smith and his um, – his observations about slavery, mm-hmm. and I and I I thought that that from an economic standpoint that that was a fascinating section. I, I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about Adam Smith's um, his his sense as to what slavery represented, and and particularly from an economic standpoint. Sure thing. So first, I'll say that Smith has many comments about the immorality of slavery, its cruelty, brutality, its baseness. He calls it, and you know observes rather polemically, how miserable the lives of slaves are. And he says they have absolutely no liberty. So he's very clearly somebody who thinks that slavery is immoral and abhorrent. And you can see these comments in his um, theory of moral sentiments, as well as the lectures on jurisprudence, which is um, a collection of two sets of student notes based on Smith's lectures on jurisprudence um, in the 1760s. Now, in The Wealth of Nations... Smith gives us an explanation for why slavery is economically inefficient and unprofitable, but also tries to explain that even though it's inefficient, it nevertheless persists. And he has this incredibly powerful line where he says, it is because of the pride of man and his love to domineer that, that even though slavery is economically inefficient because people who are forced to labor don't have the profit motive to kind of produce more than subsistence. Um, Why does it persist? It persists because the slave master has this taste for domination and power. And this makes Smith very pessimistic about the prospects of abolition because he thinks it's really hard to convince people to let go of their primary source of wealth and power, which is the power over somebody else's body and labor. Um, so Smith is actually in the minority of his time in terms of being not only morally against slavery, but also in thinking about why does slavery persist and why is it politically so difficult to achieve abolition? I think he would have been surprised that abolition actually occurred much sooner in Great Britain than it did in the United States. But um, you're absolutely right that he has this kind of interesting economic analysis of slavery in the wealth of nations where he says it's economically inefficient and unprofitable, but nevertheless, it persists because of man's love to domineer. Again, the title of the book is Adam Smith's America, How a Scottish Philosopher Became an Icon of American Capitalism. The author is our guest today, Glory Liu. I just want to recommend this book highly to our audience and definitely pick up a copy of it because the pictures, Glory Liu, are in, and the illustrations in the book are, are wonderful. I, mm-hmm. I particularly enjoyed the picture of Milton Friedman with his famous Adam Smith tie, I remember, um, in in school, uh, hearing and learning about Milton Friedman and his his connection to Adam Smith, but there is there are some differences between the two, um, particularly around Friedman's idea of 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 government and this invisible hand. And I wonder if you talk a little bit about the differences between Friedman and Smith as you talk about those in the book. Yeah. I also love that picture of Friedman. You know, he looks he looks so happy and <laughs> yeah. self satisfied. He's got this Adam yeah. Smith tie on, <laughs> yeah. this huge grin on his face. <laughs> no. 
he has multiple uh, Adam Smith ties in different colors. And he sports these on television. It's it's fantastic. Um, so yes. maybe first I'll start with saying some of their similarities are actually quite pronounced. I think both Friedman and Smith have a rather optimistic view of man's natural propensities to, as Smith calls it, truck, barter, and trade, right? That 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 the propensity to trade is natural and and that there are positive forces um, in social coordination that result from this natural propensity to trade. I think that's a key similarity. I think the other thing, um, and, and I want to be careful here because I know this can get taken in the wrong direction, mm-hmm. but, but both Smith and Friedman are quite skeptical of politicians. Mm-hmm. And I say politicians rather than government writ large, but both are quite skeptical of politicians' ability to actually do the right thing all the time and not get captured by you know, private interest groups, to use our terminology. Um, governance is a very difficult thing, and doing the right thing is also very difficult, especially when you're talking about modern economies, that is, what in Smith's term, he would have used the term commercial societies, right? Societies where the primary mode of subsistence, the way the economy works is through exchange rather than through, you know, subsistence farming or hunting and herding. Um, I would say that, you know, the key differences is that Smith has more state, Smith has more faith in the state than Friedman ever would want to admit. So Smith is very optimistic about um, public education. Friedman is not. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, and Smith has a, I would say, relatively optimistic view about why progressive taxation is important, but it's not even so much the progressivity of the tax and more about like creating a good tax regime that is as least oppressive as possible. And I don't think Friedman would like that idea as much. Or if he did, it would be justified in a slightly different way. I think the other key difference, and this is where I think people misunderstand both Friedman and also misunderstand Smith, is that for Friedman, the invisible hand of the market is in opposition to the you know heavy hand of government. So the government is the problem for Friedman. And for Smith, it's not that the government is the problem, but rather state capture of the government. So for for Smith, he's not worried about government bureaucrats, right, becoming too meddling in human affairs, but rather government bureaucrats are too easily swayed by, we'll call them corporations, (laughs) and making law that privileges certain high-powered corporations that eventually oppress the public. That's a really important and yet subtle difference between the way that Friedman and Smith are criticizing the relationship between politics and the economy. Um, and, you know, Smith is clearly very worried about how the profit-seeking motive for private corporations and private interest groups like elite merchants could itself become a source of domination and corruption. Um, and then Friedman, of course, infamously said that the social responsibility of businesses is to increase its profits. <laughs> I think that's what makes this this picture so wonderful is because, as you describe, he, Milton Friedman is smiling broadly. We don't necessarily think of him as a man who smiles broadly and much, particularly right, right. in a skip. Yeah. <laughs> so I love that. I love Human that. So, yeah, credit. again. I mean, like... Uh, say what you want about Friedman's politics, whether you agree or disagree with him. He was 
an incredibly powerful communicator, incredibly charismatic. And Mm -hmm. I think one reason why his version of Adam Smith caught on, you know, caught in the public attention is because he was just a master communicator and really, really gifted. We hear this term today. Uh, It's used often on, on both the left and the right when we hear that ideas are weaponized. And often Mm -hmm. Adam Smith's ideas are weaponized today, both on the right and the left. And I, I wonder if you'd talk to us about the contradiction, you know, between being popular on the right or the left, which which was it? Which which mm-hmm. is it? Perhaps by for Adam Smith. <laughs> um, well, before I answer that question about which is it, I want to read a quote. I pulled this, um, and and it was from Nancy Pelosi um, mm. on December first, right after the House had passed that kind of emergency legislation to avert the national railway strike. And um, this is just such a striking quote, and I think really illustrates this left versus right Smith and raises the question of who does he belong to, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. she says, this is all about, is capitalism serving us? I think it is, but it needs to be more compassionate. It has to recognize the factors of production involved, respect for workers. And then she says, Adam Smith wrote a second book, not only Mm -hmm. Wealth of Nations, which you talked about laissez-faire, and then she says, laissez-laissez-laissez-laissez-faire. And then Pelosi goes on to say, um, but he also wrote another book, a theory of moral sentiments, which from time to time I quote, because in it, his message in that book is that the strength of our economy and the strength of our workers go hand in hand. Now, what I think is so striking about that quote is, A, not only is she saying, hey, he wrote the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations, but she's trying to say that there's a connection between a kind of moral outlook on who we should care about in the economy, right? The strength of our workers and the economy as a whole. And, and I think that claim is really complicated and extremely contested because the theory of moral sentiments is not about workers. (laughs) It's not about moral capitalism necessarily, but it is about the nature of morality. And what I think is so interesting is that you see this convergence on both the political right and left today around this idea that the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations are kind of read together as a joint theory of moral economy. But of course, that term moral economy is really ambiguous and really slippery, right? Like um, some people might think that an economy that is moral has vast inequalities because what's moral is some people getting their just desserts. But other people might look at those same vast inequalities and say, no, that's not a moral economy. A moral economy is one in where where workers are getting their due. There's greater bargaining power and there's less inequality. So, you know, this answers your it kind of addresses your question about like how is Smith's ideas being weaponized, but also how how is Smith's reputation as both a moral philosopher and the author of the theory of moral sentiments, as well as the author of The Wealth of Nations, which historically has been associated with laissez-faire, but we know that that's more complicated, that's suddenly being weaponized on both the right and left. Um, I'll also add, right, that right and left are anachronistic for Smith. This, this idea of kind of dividing the political spectrum on left and right doesn't emerge until after the French Revolution, and Smith is writing before the French Revolution. And they're really just terms of convenience that we can use to try and approximate where Smith would be aligned today. 
And I think that in and of itself is an interesting task. And it's, it's political because we feel like we need to have Smith on one side or another. Now, maybe this is the last thing I'll say on this. I'm somebody who believes that Smith is neither left nor right, not only because those terms weren't accessible to him, but also because he's not writing in a partisan way. When we look for Smith's politics, well, at least when I look at Smith's politics, I'm not looking for where are his policy proposals and to what extent do they match up more with, you know, Democrats or Republicans. I'm looking at how he thinks of the nature of politics and how politics um, is is a site of um, domination and how it's a site where the goal is to kind of control the economy. <laughs> and it's far more complicated than our kind of left and right labels can mm-hmm. do him justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so well said. Glory Liu, I um, have just enjoyed this conversation. I, I found a- another quote uh, about the book that uh, again, we're talking to Glory Liu, who's written the new book, Adam Smith's America, How a Scottish Philosopher Became an Icon of American Capitalism. And the quote is, the unlikely story of how Americans canonized Adam Smith as the patron saint of free markets. I really appreciated your last mention of um, Nancy Pelosi. I'm, I'm from the Bay Area originally and I uh, think a lot of her. And so <laughs> there is this great left versus right kind of discussion about Adam Smith. And you do such a, a wonderful job in in directing us along those lines. <laughs> do we get this wrong about him being a, an icon of capitalism? <laughs> Just as you so, say in your, your kind of subtitle. It's an interesting question. And here's my answer. I don't think it's wrong to say that Smith is an icon of capitalism. He is. But but whether he should be is up for debate. And I think that's where hmm. we get the left-right debate. Um, and I think that one helpful way to get around that debate <laughs> um, is not necessarily to ignore it, but to kind of rethink its terms. So rather than thinking is Smith on the left and is Smith on the, or is Smith on the right and is left necessarily anti-capitalist and right pro-capitalist is to say, what, did he, what is Smith actually talking about? You know, to to be clear, Smith doesn't use the term capitalism. He talks about commercial society, but when he uses that term, he only uses it twice in the entirety of the wealth of nations and zero times in the theory of moral sentiments. And whether or not Smith felt the need to defend or promote commercial society, that's also a really big debate now among scholars. I think there are some scholars who think that Smith is like a defender of commercial society and therefore a defender of capitalism. And some people think that it's a kind of defense of capitalism that may be a little bit more pro-free market. And other people think that it's a defense of capitalism that is open to progressive ideas that resonate with the contemporary left. But then on the other hand, you could see Smith saying, this is not about defending capitalism or defending commercial society but providing a really compelling historical analysis about the types of political regimes that do better or worse at promoting human prosperity and freedom. And I think, and also outlining the kinds of problems that, that modern economies face. And that's very, that's a very different kind of analysis, very different way of reading Smith than just saying, right, is he defending capitalism or not? Is he on the right or left? And, and instead, looking at Smith to say, 
how is he thinking about the world? How is he thinking about the economy? What does he see that we don't? And I think when we read Smith in that latter way, we begin to rethink our own problems. And we can see that there's still value in reading Smith in a really historical way um, because he saw things differently. And and that's not at all the way I think the, the kind of popular caricature of Smith turned out. Wonderful. Glory Liu has been our guest today. Glory Liu will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. Please check out the website for more information about Glory Liu and her upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates. We'll have lots of links, including links to this fantastic book, Adam Smith's America. So nice to talk to you, Glory Liu. Um, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for this research around Adam Smith. Yeah, definitely somebody we we need to uh, understand better. And I, I know that you are um, a scholar, uh, an author, and, and a dancer, and that you've got an upcoming book on, on ballet, perhaps. And, and when you do that, please please think about coming back, because ballet and dance are important here, too. <laughs> so we do lots of stories. I'd love to talk to you about your, your life in ballet and your, your uh, upcoming books. Thank you so much. My thanks to author and Smithsonian associate, Glory Liu, and her new book, Adam Smith's America. Thanks, Glory, for reading today. Glory Liu will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. So please check out our show notes today for more details about Glory Liu at Smithsonian Associates. My thanks always to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful Dot Old Better Show audience on radio and podcast. Please be well and be safe, which I'm mentioning, repeating in every show because I want to bring attention to the issue of assault rifles which aren't safe. They're not safe in anyone's hands but the military and law enforcement. Assault rifles are killing our children and grandchildren in the very places they learn, schools. Please, let's work together to eliminate assault rifles and let's do better. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast Smithsonian Associates author interview series. Thanks everybody and we'll see you next time.